right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 171. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can always hit request in the bottom left of the Twitter app, and we'll let you up here so we can talk about what's going on in college football. We're now a week in the bowl season. We've seen a couple of games, some exciting ones. There's actually one going on right now over in Texas, the Frisco Bowl. We got Marshall up. 14 to 7 over UTSA. My uh, score bug just updated that. So UTSA is now on the board. But if there's stuff you'd like to talk about, we'd love to have you join us. Lots of things going on. I'm going to let's see here. I see some hands already up. So let's go ahead and let up John. And then I'll get to Hob. <laughs> All right, John, when you're up here, just go ahead and holler at me. Um, and we'll get this moving. So again, there's lots of things going on. Obviously, some championships have already been decided. Uh, North Central won D3. Harding won D2. Kaiser, uh, the Seahawks won the NAIA on a Monday afternoon. I'm not sure why that game kicked off at noon Eastern on a Monday. Just felt like a game that was aimed at gamblers in a, another country who don't actually follow college football. They just see championship game Kaiser versus, uh, I think it was Northwestern of Iowa. So, you know, they've heard the word Northwestern before. They assume the the Seahawks are an American team. It seems like you can see some people in, you know, one of those illicit gambling destinations in like Laos betting on that and shouting because it's the only reason I could come up with why it's at noon Eastern. But let's see here. John, what's going on? Hey, man, how you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's it's good. We've got bowl season. We got a bowl on right now. It's uh, it's always fun to be talking college football. What's on your mind? Man, uh, if you if you let me, I just want to rant for a couple of seconds here. Um, so just, you know, oh, oh my at, goodness! You know, yes, just after, after yesterday, I'd like to say the following: um, I hate I hate the state of North Carolina. I hate the city of Charlotte. I hate toast. Um, I really hate uh, blowing another lead. Um, I hate anything that's a football or looks like a football at the current moment. I'm not sure how I, I live in a world where both my favorite professional team and my favorite college team loses in the same city in heartbreaking ways within a 26 hour time period. So, um, you know what, um, maybe, maybe, maybe my love for football is a little weak at the moment, but, um, it's, it's been better days, man. <laughs> hey, you know, at least it was, a, well, it wasn't even the top three. And I think that's, that's the worst part for those who are, who are sort of wondering where John is going here. He's an old dominion fan and old dominion was up 28 to zero over Western Kentucky in the second quarter, and the game ended with Western Kentucky storming back to win 38-35 in overtime, which, by the way, is why bowls are amazing for a lot of reasons. So that clocked in as the fourth biggest uh, deficit overcome um, in college football. I mean, hey, you know what? I still remember the 2006 Insight Bowl where Texas Tech came back down 38-7 to to Minnesota and uh, managed to come back. And that game actually ended up at uh, getting the coach fired for Glenn Mason for Minnesota. And then uh, for those of you who may remember the Alamo Bowl in 2016, the famous T-shirt game for <laughs> um, Gary Patterson because they were down 31-0 at the half to the Ducks. He came out in a different colored shirt, and they stormed back to win 47-41 in overtime. So unfortunately for our friend John, he was his team was on the receiving end of one of those and yeah no wku west kentucky 28-0 deficit they managed to come back to win 38-35 that's tough man that's were you yeah. at the game 
Yeah, I I was there in person. I took I took I actually took a picture with the toast uh, mascots. I mean, I was I was entrenched at the game, full in, and just had to had to watch that collapse in person. Which oh yeah. man, could you at least eat the toast mascot like the pop tart mascot? I, I, you know, after we gave up uh, that last field goal, I if the toast mascot didn't round the stadium, I was really thinking about it. <laughs> But, you know, uh, <laughs> you can eat any mascot if you've if you've got the right attitude. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, just <laughs> surprise them. You know, it's really fun if it's like the West Virginia Mountaineer. Just take a bite. You know, I thought you were edible. I thought you were cake, man. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I did have a question for you. Uh, I didn't want to make make this whole thing about me just moaning about old Dominion, but. Um, postseason, the way the rules are written, if there weren't enough bowl teams available, they could go. Sorry, uh, yeah, I, I I'm kind of curious how uh, JV plays in their bowl game. Just want, I'm curious how curious how they play outside of the uh, of the conference. I, that's probably what I'll be paying attention the most. I think it was past weekend, man. That App State Miami Ohio game. Time will be on. I think the the game we'd be competing against is a guaranteed rate bowl, which is going to be Kansas versus UNLV, which is also going to be a good one, only because especially UNLV after that season. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Stay up here. I don't mind at all. Um, let's see here. By the way, before I forget. And this is something I was going to say at the beginning, and I always forget to, and last week I forgot. But every year, RCFB, the kind of the group we do, and it's on our Twitter, it's on our subreddit, all that stuff. We do our holiday drive. It's all a charitable drive, and I just wanted to mention it only because every single dollar goes to either Toys for Tots or Children's Hospitals. And the way we do it, in order to incentivize teams to compete with each other, the three teams, the three fan bases, I should say, that... Uh, because every time people donate, you can say which team you want credited. The three teams that have the biggest credit, um, we take half the money donated to Toys for Tots. We take half the money and we split it into, uh, you know, a half of that goes to the first place finishing fan base. 30% goes to the second place. 20% goes to the third place. We pick the Children's Hospital Associated with those fan bases we've done this now for several years now it's really great it's always fun um you know uh it's always fun to write that we do that so the nice thing is that we're now 501c3 um so any donate 501c3 we formed it's totally tax deductible we're totally legit on the level although we were before but now we're official right so uh i just wanted to mention that only because um that ends on friday so uh i was going to mention So I think I'd bring it up right now because if, you, if you're interested in joining us, um, the, the deadline for that is midnight Eastern on Friday, December 22nd. Uh, you can find all the information on that in the tweet that is stuck. And mention that before I forgot. But let's see here. I'm going to get to everybody in the line. But Bob. Can you hear me? Hob, it's, Hob Buggins. It's been a yeah, while, what's going man. on, man? Sorry, it's been a minute. I'm glad to be here tonight. Um, 
I'm glad to hear you again, man. I was happy Dude, to see your, your name. Work's been killing me. It's our busiest time of year, but it's all good. We're good. We're good. Um, I just want to take this moment to like, I'd like to think I'm one of the most, I mean, a lot of people are biased with their college teams, but when it comes to West Virginia, like I'm unbiased. I'd like to think like I've watched the Mountaineers since I was like four or five years old. I just turned 30. So like, I was really excited. That I think West Virginia is going to win the damn big 12 next year. Garrett green, who I've been a Garrett green truther since he stepped on campus Neil Brown might have an extension or who knows. Neil Brown might be sitting right if he would have started Garrett Green three years ago instead of riding with Davey. Garrett Green's a freaking college baller. He's not going to play on Sundays, but West Virginia is going to win 10 to 12 next games next year. We're going to win the damn Big 12. I'm, I'm excited for what I saw outside of the Houston game this year, honestly. Yeah, that Houston game was just such a quirk. Like, that happens every now and again in the programs. I mean, it wasn't quite as bad as what happened to Miami against Georgia Tech. But that was that was uh that was just one of those games where just kind of like hot dang you know <laughs> oh, that 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 final sequence and I mean the killer oh thing it, the, I mean every college fan knows their team's curse but like in my entire lifetime I a go ahead fourth and ten for a touchdown only for that to not be you know what I'm saying everybody knows what happens right after that so like it was it, it was destined. Uh, West Virginia football and basketball and Murphy's Law, man. It's been a rough year and a half in Morgantown, man. Oh, man. Well, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing the the Duke's Mayo Bowl because we're going to see if Neil Brown or Mac Brown gets the Mayo bath at the end of the whole thing. So that'll be fun. I know I've mentioned it before, but that whole saga with with they because again we're friends with the Charlotte Sports Foundation people. They're technically the bowl organizers because some people don't understand like it's not the sponsor that does the bowl. They just pay money and they get their name and they get well, to do fun things. But uh, but yeah, no that they the whole setup for that um, they had to get a whole bunch of uh, uh, permit or the the Carolina Panthers made it really hard to figure out where they were going to actually dump that mayo, and so they had to put a tarp down on the concrete. That was the way they were able to make it. Well, I it's know, in the tu- that's why it's in the tunnel. I know that John dude ain't a big fan of Charlotte, but uh, last time I was in that stadium, we kicked Tennessee's butt all over the hot, all over the place. So I'm excited for the 2016. Well, well, it wasn't that stadium, well Charlotte. It wasn't that stadium. They played it at the the Charlotte 49ers stadium. So it was like the uh, I okay, forgot the name of right, it. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, don't worry. I, I hate both stadiums equally as a Falcons fan. So don't you worry about that part. <laughs> well, hey, hey, Charlotte's one of the few big cities on the East Coast. Just West Virginia boy likes to go to. I got to go there one day. The Queen City, man. I've been meaning to. I just haven't had a chance yet. Um, it's on my list. That's for sure. Let's see here. I'm going to let up Ski Mask Smurphy. Um, get you up here. Man, lots of stuff going on. It looks like, oh, hey, it looks like UTSA has tied this up. I've got kind of the stat page that updates in front of me. So it's now 14-14 with about just under nine minutes left in the second quarter. That's all I love about bowl games. I mean, it's like it's football product. It's um the funniest thing I've ever heard about some of these games is again, like for example, Frank Harris star at UTSA uh, last second, they started rumors started to come up and he was in street clothes when the game kicked off. But it's like, uh, the I can't remember which person said this, uh, but it, this is like, you're seeing versions of your favorite teams. Like it's a version of the team. It's not going to be quite maybe the team, especially when it's not the CFP may not be the exact team you're watching during the season, but dang it. It's a version of the team. And sometimes you get wild games for better or worse in, in John's case. But uh, Ski Masks Murphy, what's going on? 
Uh, how you doing there, Bonnet? Uh, I'm good, man. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I'm glad that my pick for last week turned out to be the proper bowl game because App State versus Ohio was every bit of chaos as a normal App State game, but a little bit extra sprinkled on. Because if you didn't watch the game or weren't on the East Coast this weekend with how much rain we got, the whole field just turned into, I guess, for Florida's sake, a swamp. So much to the point that the actual paint for, like, you know, the logos that you paint on the field for, like, ball games, all of that washed out, and you could see the UCF logo on the field. And I just thought, this game couldn't get any more crazier. And then so much to the point that they had to bring up the stat for what is actually the most fumbles ever in a game, which I don't think anyone at ESPN was prepared to ever do. It was just, like, 17. And I was like, that's, that's interesting. But, yeah, that was good. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on – I had I had to look it up. I remember it from earlier in the earlier, well, late last week. There's sort of like this court case that I think Texas put like a pause on a restriction for someone's ability to transfer without having to sit out a second time. And it seems like if that Supreme Court pushes forward, it could be guys could just keep transferring every season freely. How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, you're right, and I forgot exactly which. And you're right. The, there is a, a there was a case. They got a um, temporary. I, I think it was a temporary restraining order, or I, I didn't actually. I, I apologize. It might have been a temporary injunction. But now, because this is still in uh, in effect for X number of weeks, it's basically currently we're in a, a period of free for all where anyone can transfer at any time. Like every transfer restriction has been removed until they sort this this next step of the case out. Um, so here's where it gets interesting. I, it, the more I've kind of, as, as I've gotten older, I've become much more of a player-centric person just in terms of my support for them and their opportunities to move where they want to move. There's some interesting questions to all of this because if, like, if players are stuck in one place, I mean, they're, they're, I can see the pluses and the minuses because so many players, you know, and many coaches will tell you, well, there was a player he was kind of annoyed, you know, that he wasn't getting playing time, and then that person ended up being, you know, a superstar that we all know by name. It's just like the first couple of years just didn't work out, or maybe there was someone in front of them who they thought was good but may not have been as good, you know, all these years later. We don't know. the They're, they're not names like the person um, who had been held behind. But at the same time, you know, for some of these guys, you know, obviously – Previously, historically, it seems like ages ago, but it wasn't that long ago that, you know, coaches could move at any given time. And then the players were kind of stuck for the most part. Um, at best, they could move down to to lower division to get, you know, immediate playing time. Otherwise, they'd have. To transfer and then sit out a year, there was so many ugly Um, so there, there's a lot of arguments for it, although I can see how the chaos of it kind of be annoying for fans, especially, I mean, you know, I'll tell you what, those smaller schools have been taking a hit West Virginia included. Yeah, because they become farm teams in a lot of ways. Although I wouldn't say some of the restrictions we're seeing now, um, that are being argued about would have necessarily prevented it. I mean, certainly because the, the, the reasoning was the, the rules were you could transfer once without any question, um, without any kind of, you know, and then as a grad transfer and those kinds of things. But this is this is really loosening it up. Ski Mask, Smurphy, and then John. Yeah, I was going to say, I think 
I came in and said that's what has been wrong some of the small schools. And I was thinking back to uh, the other week when we had the coach on here, the one from out in Eastern Oregon, that if they do allow us, like, instead of, you know, the standard, you know, transfer once, then wait till you graduate and move freely, they can, if students can sort of move every year, I mean, that's good for the players. But it sort of almost ruins sort of like the whole JUCO scene in that, you know, most of the time JUCO is just for guys wanted to move, but they wanted to still play football to have tape and then go to another school and spend that year, you know, like last chance you and stuff like that. And I think that sort of drives up if kids are able to just freely move around. And you also said the thing about, um, you know, contract stipulations. That sort of was slash wasn't a thing in the old rules with, you know, even though they couldn't legally put it on paper, the whole thing with coaches holding the right for a guy's ability to transfer, it was always, you can transfer in the school, you just can't transfer to someone in the conference. So it seems like this thing could be going to a Wild West era, especially if they don't make the students employees. It'll, I think it's going to get out of hand and almost be like NFL teams where it's like, you're just going to see new guys every year from your school and just have to learn who they are. Yeah, you know, we'll all be like Colorado. No, um, <laughs> you know, and it's interesting too because, um, gosh, no, you know what? I, I want to allow. Wait, John, you you had your hand up. I'll let you. I'll let you jump in. Yeah, I was gonna. Oops, I'll just drop my phone. Um, I was gonna say that. Yeah, I I understand what I was saying too about. Trust me, as as a Sun Belt team uh, fan, being being a feeder school seems like the new norm now. But at the same time, for us, this is probably the most talent we've ever gotten in this team because. You know, we have got had guys coming down from programs to get more playing time so they can maybe move elsewhere. I mean, it's hard for me to complain because I think without this talent, we we probably are a way worse team because of it. Um, and so I, I think I think it's good for the parity of it uh, for the sport. I, I think it helps the smaller programs like ourselves. Even when guys are coming in and out, we still are. You know, as long we can make the baby steps to become a better G five program. Um, I, and I know a lot. A lot of people, are, you know, get worried or you know, talk about how guys are just transferring every single year. I think eventually that's all going to counter itself out. I think some guys are going to realize that, you know, the you know, grass is not green or green on the other side. And I think that's. I think it's going to slow down eventually, even though it doesn't look like it right now. I think it does slow down because I think guys are going to realize that you know, going hopping school to school isn't going to be beneficial for their career. Yeah, it's interesting as we're seeing this go from year to year, the way the thing settles in. And I think that was some of the smarter takes, you know, in retrospect where, you know, let 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 the let the system work for a couple of years before we judge it. Because I remember what we were hearing before it launched into the portal and NIL. And now when we're kind of there, it's a little more we can kind of follow it a little more. We know not every player is getting a ton of money thrown at him. We know some of the players, you know, you kind of feel for a guy like Kyle McCord, for example you know, clearly unwanted somewhat or getting that sense while he was at Ohio State. Now he's going to Syracuse. That was a big surprise. We can talk about that later. But um, again, that that's a big testament to the, the quality of recruiting and the new head coach. But Hob, I see your hand up and then um, we'll let B. Kemp's jump in because he's been really patient. This is like it was happening 30 years ago under the table. Um, it is what it is. It sucks when like, not to take shots at Old Miss, but like it sucks when you got an Old Miss coach in your safety's DM saying, "Come on down here um, and play for us." When he hasn't even put himself in the portal yet, and then boom, Burks is gone from West Virginia, deletes everything. But it is something I have accepted, 
and I ain't even tripping over it anymore. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, that made me think of the other thing too. I mean, cause the, the universities operate like that on the, the, the top level because no one knew USC and UCLA were out the door until basically they were like the day before. Um, and that was because they were also, you know, no one wants to leave their conference unless they already have the new conference ready to go. I mean, people do that in jobs all the time. You know, it's like they always say, you know, don't, don't announce you're leaving until you have that job in hand, until you're already, you already got that. Like the coaches do that all the time. And I don't blame them because again, that's the, uh, we've seen one head coach who infamously thought he was leaving and then made everyone think he was leaving. And then they gave a coaching job to another coach and he awkwardly went back. Uh, and that was a really painful last couple of years for him. But anywho, uh, B camps, you've been super patient. What's on your mind, my friend? Hey man, how you doing tonight? Good. I want to appreciate, uh, you know, having the audience here and a lot of good discussion and want to start off by saying uh hottie toddy. I'm an Ole Miss alum and, uh, it's obviously been, uh, been quite a year for college football with all the changes in conference, right? The transfer portal. I'm sure you see an Ole Miss in there a time or two, uh, got oh, a big yeah. game come- right now i know it's a new world and we're just playing a game so your thoughts around that and how you see us fitting in and next year with the new uh, sec makeup yeah that's a great question so the peach bowl is really fascinating and and i think it's yeah it's definitely because we you've obviously set aside the semifinals. The orange bowl is by far i, I want to give it just that benefit of the doubt of being probably the most interesting because of the teams that are in it with georgia and florida state and Penn State teams that in a lot of ways starting next season are I think are going to be in a better place mostly because of the expanded playoff because they're they're continuously teams that get up into that top 12 kind of zone and that's what we're talking about, really top 11 assuming that some G5 team may be you know in who isn't necessarily in that top 12 themselves but I think that that has made it kind of fascinating to kind of to, to look at them especially moving in the next season. So I think on the, the future of, of just in general of uh, Ole Miss along with Penn State and the Peach Bowl, those two teams have a positive, I think, future heading into next season. Now, going to the Peach Bowl itself, I'm fascinated because I'm, I'm still waiting to see who's playing. I don't know if we're going to get any last second, you know, uh, opt outs or, or who's going to be in it. But all things said, I think, man, I'm, I, it's hard to it's hard to pick one there. I mean, I'm pretty positive about Ole Miss in general only because they've always they, Lane Kiffin seems to have been made to play the transfer portal I mean you see who he's got I oh, mean yeah. Antoine Wells from South Carolina he's got a couple of offense he's got some good linemen both on the both sides of the ball you know Rick wow look hopefully at all those here in the uh, Walter Nolan news here seen too fingers crossed yeah so he is I mean he is absolutely able to make that portal work and you think again? I wonder if Ole Miss is going to be one of those teams, especially going into the playoff, where they they just need to get in. Can they can they produce playoff runs, deep playoff runs, where they're not necessarily always constantly running up against? Same with Penn State. I mean, 
that means they probably won't go up immediately against Michigan or Ohio State, and Penn State won't, and, and Ole Miss won't immediately go up against Alabama and Georgia. Sometimes mixing things up, teams surprise each other. They're just not used to playing the style of game that suddenly a game, a team coming out of conference, because that's been a big question, by the way. I just want to, not to, to go to the, the, the semifinals, but I'm absolutely fascinated to see Michigan and Alabama, only because Michigan has been playing very certain types of teams with strong defenses, but the offense hasn't been like, they haven't been crazy offenses, and you're going to suddenly get the Alabama team, which has also got a strong defense, but has also, you know, has got an offense that's sort of come alive with uh, uh, Jalen Milrow as a running quarterback, and then the offensive line is kind of, so it'll be fun to see how both of those squads, you know, now taken outside of their comfort, because that was a classic, you know, again, I apologize for making this about Michigan, but that was a the classic complained about Michigan last couple of seasons. There were teams that were built to beat Ohio State, and when it got into the playoffs, you know, bleh, you know, they they kind of they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready for Georgia that first year, or then TCU just shocked them the, the next year. But I think this this playoff situation, we're going to get teams like an Ole Miss who can work their way in, and then you know, let the other SEC teams that get there worry about their opponents. Can they then climb their way up and and maybe take advantage and find themselves better suited? That's where I'm kind of curious to see them especially as we head into the future. Um, but my goodness, heading into this Peach Bowl, what are your, what's your take? How, how do you think, I mean, I, I admit I haven't played as close attention to the opt-out situation there. How much of an Ole Miss team are we getting? What version of Ole Miss are we getting? You know, it's, it's always, as I said earlier, it's versions of our favorite teams in a lot of these games. Yeah, there's a few guys that have declared already, uh, a couple transfers as well, but that's also, you know, good and bad because that means you have a lot of guys coming in to fill those skill positions, right? Um, so not counting the transfers, right. I'd say you have about a 90 to an 85% uh, makeup of what we had during the season, right. Uh, Jackson Dart should be playing. He is now, he's coming back for next year, which is obviously huge for us. So yeah, I would say, I would say, you know, pretty close to what we were last year and hopefully it's a good game. And I think it's, it's kind of ironic because I really feel like Ole Miss is the Penn state of, you know, the big 10 and, and oh, absolutely. Vice versa, right. We're just a half tier behind that Michigan, Ohio state, right. That Bama, Georgia. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like we're, we're getting there, right? But I understand the boundaries and we still got some work to do. But, uh, you know, I feel like we're getting close there. So I'm feeling good against Penn State. It'll be a good matchup. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the the uh, the comparisons are are pretty, you know, are pretty good. I mean, you've got two coaches that are love to talk. You know, they're, they're totally different. They're different in their own ways. But, you know, they love to, you know, Lane certainly loves to, to razz on his opponents. And then, yeah, then they get to the top the top tier and they don't quite make it, but one year they will, you know, I feel like that that's what, and I think Ole Miss fans would be fine with that in general. It's like if once every four years or so, they, they pull a surprise and make it ahead. I think that would be, I think Ole Miss fans would love that. I think they would, they would build a statue of Lane, which would be hilarious. But, um, Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, and it's so funny for those who haven't had an opportunity, like I've, I've interviewed Lane back in the day and I've talked to other reporters just to make sure I'm not crazy about this, but I had a chance to talk to him when he was the FAU head coach. It was like his first year there after he'd been in the Knicks, in the Nick Saban school for coaches who didn't coach well in their previous spots. And he's not what you expect in person. Anyone who's ever talked to him, he's really, he's almost, he's like mellow and, and quiet. And he isn't like, you could tell he's got like a, a mischief personality, but he isn't like exciting fun. He doesn't come off as like what he's got personas. You could tell when he wants to turn it on in a press conference to spice things up, he can do it. But then sometimes when you got him, he's actually one of the hardest interviews because he's just really quiet, really mellow. And you, it's so funny because you talk to him and you know, okay, clearly he can get players to play for him because all these head coaches, anyone invariably 
You talk to them, and even if they're terrible at their job, you can kind of see how they can get a, a group of young men to play for them. Like, it's really obvious. With him, I'm like, man, you really just don't want to be here? Or and also, it's just kind of how he is, which only because this is not that far removed from when he was at USC. I wanted to see what it was like when he was paired up with Ed Orgeron, when Ed Orgeron was the head of recruiting and he was the head coach. And the two personalities together would have been an absolute sight to see. I can't even imagine that. That would have been absolute pure entertainment. Like that would have been a reality show before college football reality shows became trendy. That's all I got to say. But yeah, I'm looking looking forward to the Peach Bowl. That's going to be absolutely exciting. Um, I think we're gonna have yeah we're gonna have somebody in the press box for that one too. So he's gonna have a good time there. I've always wanted to go to a game in Mercedes Benz. Uh, over in Atlanta. That's a, that's a fun place. It looks like an amazing venue. Um, let's see here. So again, if you want to join the conversation, feel free to hit request. Um, we're about half hour in. That makes about that makes sense considering uh, it's kind of a weird part of the season. We're still in the middle of all these bowls. Let's see here. It's still, oh, it looks like Marshall's gone up by a field goal. So it's 17-14 Marshall with about two minutes and a half left. In the second quarter over in Frisco, um, you know, a couple of other pieces of interesting news that sort of popped up this week on our CFB. Um, this is totally Brett, Mc yeah, Brett McMurphy. When I saw the headline, I'm like, this is what Brett, Mc Brett McMurphy would do. He's now at a, a website, Action, um, Action Network. But they calculated the top 32 most watched college football teams this past season. Uh, based on a minimum of five Nielsen-rated games. Well, that's pretty. That's a good, reasonable way to calculate it. So here's, I'm going to just, I'm not going to go through all 32, but here's your top 10. Number one, well, I'll start from the bottom. Number 10 was actually Notre Dame. So they had a 4.15 uh, average. 10 games of theirs were Nielsen-rated. So then above them, Florida State, by a hair, 4.16. They had 12 games that managed to become rated in that uh, nielsen in Nielsen ratings. Some of this is, by the way, the problem of where their games were. I don't think Notre Dame probably got hampered by a game on Peacock. And I think they had a game on the Pac-12 network. Like those, don't, <laughs> you might as well just put your, put your, uh, you might as well, why are you even televising at that point? Anyway, um, and then let's see, Texas came in at number eight with uh, 4.26, Oregon, 4.46, Tennessee, number six, 4.57. I think that's a good benefit also of the SEC network and this and CBS, their last season of CBS uh, doing the SEC. Michigan uh, came in at number five, 12 games that were Nielsen rated, 5.61. Georgia came in as number three with, pardon me, number four, pardon me, with uh, 5.9. Colorado, by the way, here's your Dion effect. Colorado was the third most watched team this season. I mean, averaging it all out with nine Nielsen rated games. By the way, that's that nine is fewer than the top five by three. Um so they uh, they had the Nielsen rating of six. Ohio State comes in at number two with a six point zero five rating average, and Alabama number one with an impressive seven point one two. So you could actually maybe even credit Alabama. It's old school Alabama. They're dragging up the rankings of all the teams that play Alabama because suddenly their their opponents also get to claim one of those highly rated games. Um, some other ones I want to put there. USC was in number thirteen. It's funny you see most of the big names though, and and. Really, I've mentioned this in previous shows, and this is just uh, something to keep in mind. If you're talking about, and I'm not sure when we're ever going to see another round of um, conference realignment, but the way conference realignment is viewed now is no longer, you know, regional markets. It's no longer, oh, this 
schools in Los Angeles. It's actually more about this school brings in eyeballs on a national level in the Nielsen ratings, which it's funny to look at the, these numbers. If Dion had been at Colorado for like the last five years and pulled in those numbers, I guarantee you people would have been talking about Colorado a whole lot more um, when looking at things like the Big Ten or even the SEC because they're looking at you know the, the national audience that tunes, tunes in to watch these teams. If you've got a national audience, if you can pull that in, it's no surprise that the, the top 15, top 20 are all brand names that we've heard of. Um, you know, the so-called blue blood. So I just wanted to, to note that as we move a little bit forward, I'm going to let up the water boy and ski mask Smurphy. While I do that, I see your hand up. Yeah. I just wanted to comment saying that being, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I got a cold to have a team that was a previous season, a one, a one win team then the next season to have them basically be one of the most watched teams in all of America is it. That's an insane feat to pull off, which I don't know how you can measure that, but Dion is probably the the greatest seller of football who's ever lived to be able to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't, it's unprecedented. I, you know, you can say that objectively, folks. Like, that doesn't just happen. You don't go from like, a, you know, one, a one win team going and suddenly pulling in the, you know, a top five TV ranking the next season. You know, that doesn't happen unless the team is already like Ohio State, you know what I mean? Or Alabama or something like that. And, and you know, even then, there's usually not that kind of a level. So, you know, credit to him for that. That I, I think that's why, personally, some people were giving a lot of crap for the fact that he got the uh, sports person of the year. I think it was by SI, but I got it if you're looking at it in that way. Because the splash, nobody than he did because based on those kinds of numbers. Because that's... Again, that Colorado State Colorado game, which was you know in the middle of the night, by the time it ended in overtime, pulled in the, like some of the highest ratings of the week, which is just it's incredible. But um, let's see here, uh, the Water Boy, what's going on? Hey, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm good. Sorry, my thumb kept hitting the the mute on mute, mute on mute. I always try to keep myself off so I don't create I thought, feedback loops. I, sorry, I thought I had the little uh, the little delay there. Um, I'll tell you what's going on tonight. I wanted to remind everyone, anyone who may have joined late, about the Reddit holiday drive. I just made my donation. Um, you know, I'm sure that'll put San Diego State right to the top. Um, probably not. Uh, what I do like is I was looking through the list. If you go to the, you know, the CFB message board, is seeing the folks that that donate an amount that was like the score of their favorite teams, like win over a rival. It always gives me a little chuckle to see these like weird, like donations amount of like 42.24. And then you kind of look at their flair and you figure that out. So that, that's the, it's always a fun there's, little thing that folks do. There's one I do want to mention. And I just want to credit the guy. His name, he goes by the username spasm zero one. He's a raging Cajuns fan. And after his bowl ended, and, and I mentioned this earlier, Jacksonville state, uh, won their first bowl game in overtime, beating Louisiana in the New Orleans Bowl, which is like a Ragin' Cajuns home game every year, 34 to 31. So he still donated, and he donated 34 31. He didn't do 31 34. I wouldn't have blamed him if he did 31 34 to put his own team first, but he, he donated the final score of that bowl game, which kind of made me then wonder, well, oh man, the children are going to suffer. They should have blown Jacksonville State, should have scored more. It should have been like a 70 to 74 <laughs> kind of blowout or something like that. Uh, speaking like, of scores, I just saw, wow, this is this Frisco Bowl is exciting, man. UTSA's already gone back on the board again. Uh, they're, they've now taken the lead. They have a 21-point 
second quarter. There's 41 seconds left, so they're up now 21-17 over Marshall. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But going back to you, uh, Waterboy, what's on your mind? So the other thing, uh, wanted to see what you thought about uh, Chip Kelly and his comments on on paying the players, uh, separating like uh, basically football from the other sports. He he started off with his argument with UCLA should be playing teams like Arizona State and and I forget who else he mentioned like like Stanford and, and women's softball and not be you know worried about playing Maryland and you know Rutgers and women's softball. And about separating football and then having like two divisions, sort of like a, a 64 team, like as we know it, like P5 division and a 64 team, you, you know, G5 as we kind of know it division. And just what was your two cents on, on, on his whole take? Well, I think it's a it's been a popular take, you know, in some ways. I mean, it's been we've seen it floating around for a while now with various coaches. And I think it's always good to hear more coaches willing to be open about it, because I think. And I think there's like there's different ways to think of it. You go the altruistic way completely, like he's just trying to stick up for you know everybody in sports and trying to help the whole system work. But really, I think it, there is, and I'm not going to say a cynical view, but I think there's a there's a realist view for a lot of these head coaches. They know their players are valued more. They know the system can afford to pay them more, and they know that as head coaches, they'll still get the same probably the same amount of money they were getting before. So it, it, it's a zero-sum game in their mind for their players. Um, now, but realistically to do that, you have to not worry about the... the, the I think they're trying to all... Because, I mean, this came up, especially when... And uh, Charlie Baker's... Uh, and again, it, it was... We're pointing out like Stanford's got, and I'm not even joking, like 900 athletes in their entire athletic department because they play every sport. That's why whenever you see like non-scholarship, probably non, uh, probably you see Olympic sports, Stanford's always usually in the top five of like every sport out there. Um, Texas too is is usually in that group. There's a couple of schools that are in that kind of category, but if you go and you look at you know Auburn, they've got like 300 athletes all together, something like a 300 or 400 zone. So suddenly they're paying far less per year to maintain um, this separate division that uh, Charlie Baker and company were proposing. So the idea of just splitting football off altogether, maybe men's basketball, but certainly football loosens up. Men's basketball is a little easier to manage only because there's only there's f- such a small roster compared to yeah. a, a football team. Um, so to kind of jump back just a little bit about what you said earlier, do you think we've now reached the tipping point where people are in favor of paying the players because early on in the NIL, when California first uh, said, Hey, we're going to like be passing this bill that it came at like those that like, like myself who supported it as we were the ones supporting the death of college football. Have we now gotten to the tipping point where we're on the opposite side? Uh, you know, you said like a few, a few coaches, like I think Harbaugh immediately pops to mind is one that he's been saying for over a year now, the players need to be paid. And Chip Kelly seems to be the second biggest name coach to join him on that. I'm just wondering, are we at that, uh, that tipping point where that's now becoming accepted? You know, I think we are. I know that we've seen, and again, I'm, I haven't paid attention to who's creating these particular polls, but a lot of the, um, a lot of the writing that's coming up, 
it seems to indicate that, especially now that it's been in business popular then, um, as well as simply seeing that college football didn't immediately fall apart. Because I think that's, we, we get that classic, you know, I'm not going to say like chicken little sky is falling, but you get a little bit of that, you know, that, that every time one of these comes up, oh, people are going to stop watching, people aren't going to care. And what happens, you know, by all accounts, this season has been the most watched college football. question is, is it ultimately, do people care more about the program? You know, I, you know, did you go to university of X, you know, is that who you associate with more so that a lot of this other stuff that while may not entirely sit right when it comes into play is still not really strong enough to make you stop watching, not really strong enough to make you to be completely against it. And if anything kind of, um, creeps up on you kind of, uh, uh, insidiously i don't know if you want to say it that way but kind of rises up and suddenly you're kind of like you buy in without realizing it i'm not sure but certainly it seems like more of the public is in favor of it than there had been before you know ski mask smurphy i see your hand up oh yeah i agree with paying the players but i think like you said with the whole title nine thing that may come up with it i think also the part that may mess things up well sort of prevent it from the bigger schools breaking off would be, especially with the state schools, be something similar to what happened with um, U.S. soccer. That a lot of the players for a lot of sports, such as men's and women's basketball, the women will be able to say, you know, we're doing the exact same job, so we need to get paid the exact same as male players. And I think that would put a little bit of a, a stop in what some of the schools ended up doing with it. I mean, football, yeah, it was sort of need to be treated by itself. But with Title IX, I don't think what Chip Kelly, Jim Harbaugh wants to do will be as easy as it seems on the surface. Yeah, it does feel like it, there's going to be a lot of issues with how that might work, only because of so much of the existing framework. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the idea of putting all the, the football player, football teams into their own area and then just have a commissioner, it would be like – it's one of those things where, boy, I really wish we could go back in time and set that up from the beginning. But unfortunately, a lot of momentum has 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 created institutions. Uh, let's see. Let Dom Cruz up here. See uh, what you want to say. What's going on, man? Yeah, when you get a chance, just hit on me. What's mute. going on, brother? Enjoyed the topic so far. I just want to talk about how it's taken Syracuse maybe three weeks to accomplish what Rutgers, we've been hearing at least, has been hoping to do for who knows how long since I guess that class of 2017 trying to target in on the top in-state recruits. Yeah, it's absolutely – I mean, because, again – for those who aren't familiar, Syracuse is, has kind of got everyone's attention by, uh, you know, transfer portaling Kyle McCord from Ohio State because I thought he was genuinely headed to Nebraska. I think a lot of people were. I don't think it could have just been Dylan Raiola because the idea is Dylan, you know, Raiola, top quarterback. He was already kind of waffling. He had been waffling originally between Nebraska, where his dad had played, and uh, you know, and and Georgia because it's Georgia. I mean, everyone thought Georgia had won because he committed to Georgia and then moved to Georgia, which everyone was like, okay, wow, that's pretty hardcore. But then suddenly there was a change of heart. 
And his uncle, who's actually a very good coach, was the offensive line coach, but was on Matt Rule's staff. You know, say what you will about the offense of Nebraska. The collective view is the offensive line was not the problem. They actually got a lot better this season. So it wasn't just a nepotism thing there. Um, but his dad, uh, Dylan Rail, his dad was a superstar at uh, Nebraska. So all these things going into that. But um, so when he transferred in there, suddenly Kyle McCord ends up, you know, deciding to, to transfer to uh, – uh, 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 Kyle McCord, uh, probably, sorry, to Syracuse. Sorry, I got like three messages appearing on my phone at once as I was saying that, so totally got distracted there. But going back to Rutgers, yeah, it's fascinating too because I mean, is it so much because you know, Shiano's a good coach, you know, he can recruit, but how good is I mean, like, because that there's a lot of questions when, um, uh, uh, Fran, oh gosh, what's this? Uh, I'm totally blinking here. Oh, yeah, Fran Brown. Sorry. Somebody coached Browns right now. We've talked about Mac Brown, Neil Brown, now Fran Brown. But when they brought Fran Brown in, there was some kind of question, like you're bringing in a position coach. Yeah, he has a background in the area. Yeah, he knows how to recruit in that area. But people, you know, you kind of are always a little bit hesitant. Syracuse is taking a bit of a risk here going with a position coach. But my goodness, just seeing the names that he's brought in, you know, seeing Kyle McCord, seeing, uh, uh, you know, Jackson Meeks from Georgia, you know, wide receiver for him to throw to another good actually a couple of wide receivers from Georgia. You know, he got a linebacker from West Virginia. Seeing what he's doing so far, um, that kind of they, clearly you kind of start to see what Syracuse saw in the in the man. In the, I want to call him a young man, but you know, he's older than the players, right? So uh um it's interesting too. So it's gotta be striking only because that's been a big question for for Rutgers for Boston College for Syracuse, the further you go in the Northeast. Like, can these teams manage to put together recruiting classes? Can they make themselves desirable? Can they go back to the days where they were, you know, just contenders? To me, Syracuse, it wasn't all that long ago Syracuse was good. I remember when I started following college football, Syracuse was actually, like, uh, considered a premier program. And then, you know, it, it's been a minute. It, it's been a minute for them. Um, but how about yourself? What do you think about all of this as a, as a Rutgers fan? Yeah, I mean, even big-time transfer portal commitments to Syracuse and then um... – what I kind of wanted to point out is a few in-state flips uh, guys committed. I think we had a Texas A&M, Stanford, and I can't think of the other school um, from New Jersey, high school recruits that then flipped to uh, Syracuse. And, I mean, Fran Brown's only been there for, I'm not even sure if it's been three weeks yet. So, uh, yeah, good to see those kids, I guess, playing together still. Um, yeah, we've been asking Rutgers to do this for a while, so it'll be interesting to see if Syracuse can keep this staff together and get those kind of Jersey pipeline kids to Syracuse now. Absolutely, you know, and and I'm just going to answer one of the I just saw because some folks again you can you can drop questions or, or thoughts into like the the reply chat or whatever you want to call it. Um, Kyle asked, you know, do you think that the signing the probably the signing of uh, Dylan Rayola puts Nebraska back on the map? And are there any players following him? I think that's a that's a great question. And frankly, Dylan Raiola deciding to, to go to Nebraska, as it, first of all, it wasn't surprising. That's a great thing to say if you're a Nebraska fan. Um, that you know, not just it wasn't just a family connection, but it was also, I think, for all the faults of how Nebraska came close to getting the bowl eligible and just couldn't quite get there. They kept they kind of reverted back to losing close games. The offense wasn't really working out. A lot of it could be, you could point out the quarterback position, just the guys they had just were not working out. They were throwing interceptions left and right. I was at Matt Rule's first game at Minnesota. It was, uh, it was interesting. That was classic. I could not tell if Minnesota's defense was great, Nebraska's defense was great, or Minnesota's offense was, was the better. I, you couldn't tell anything. And it turns out the answer was Nebraska just had a terrible quarterback. 
um, or terrible quarterback play in general. So the idea of pulling rail in, that'll help a lot. Um, will he bring in some folks with him? Quite possibly. I, I think, um, I don't know, it might be a little late to make a huge impact on this particular uh, recruiting class, but the idea of him going there will draw attention. You know, success breeds success. You know, seeing top players where they go, you know, the potential that he saw will certainly get the attention of some folks who are maybe debating about, well, should I go to, if they're considering Nebraska, it will certainly make them take another look at it. And certainly, I forgot the name of the other gentleman who they're bringing in um, in that same class as quarterback at Nebraska, but he had also been a key player in bringing in some of the uh, some of the other folks that are going to be in this class that the Huskers are going to have this season. So it's exciting if you're in Nebraska right now. I mean, Matt Rule, it's been, it's been driven into the ground, but for those who haven't heard it, um, if you look at how he did at Temple, if you look at how he did at, uh, at Baylor, that first season was always rough. I mean, pretty rough. And then it would start to build from there and look good quick. He was good at building programs from the ground up. And if the, you know, a five-win season is, is the worst thing we're going to see at Nebraska in his tenure there, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be excited uh, over in Lincoln. And I think it would be fun. You know, it's fun when Nebraska's good. I always consider it kind of fun. Even if you're not a huge fan of Nebraska, they make the sport interesting when they're good only because, first of all, their fans are pretty fun. Pretty fun. Uh, if you ever hung out with them, they're generally really friendly as long as you didn't go to Colorado, which I didn't go, so they're friendly to me. But, uh, Dom, I see your hand up. Agreed. It's, it's fun when Nebraska's good. Do you know next year if the Big Ten is going divisionless? Because obviously that'll be have a big impact on Nebraska's future success. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're divisionless. This is the last year of the divisions for them. So, and I know, like for example, Penn State was thrilled about that because they're not they're not locked in the same small cage with with uh, Ohio State and Penn uh, and uh, uh, Michigan. Uh, Ski Master Murphy, I see your hand up. Maybe I, I, I'm a little off on that. Oh yeah, yeah, they're going divisionless. They're sort of okay. like what you said with Penn State. They're trying to shove off Penn State to to basically not play Ohio State and Michigan and make it just, I guess, be. Penn State gets into the conference championship by bypassing the two people who they can never beat. Are you saying they deserved it more than Iowa this season? <laughs> no. I, uh, oh my they God. blew out Iowa, for the record, for those who don't as, know. As, as a Michigan alum, as a college football fan from a very young age, about like that dog pissing celebration in the egg ball. And oh, like, yes. The great butterfly effect. I feel like the next great butterfly effect of college football is the non-fair catch against Minnesota. Because I feel like if that doesn't happen, I'll win that game. Then potentially Iowa beats us. Then the rest of the world has to suffer through Iowa winning a championship with no offense, just pure defense and special teams. It would have been the greatest thing ever. I, I've joked that if Iowa had managed to pull off that upset with uh, in the Big Ten championship game and a couple of other upsets happened and somehow Iowa ended up in the college football playoff, that would have been by far the best chaos scenario in history because everyone, it, it would have been such a distraction. Like it, it's because, of course, they had already let go of Brian Ferentz, but he would have still been coaching. So he would have still been the distraction, like the, the <laughs> offensive coordinator that is terrible at his job would have stolen the thunder of whoever they're playing of, you know, of the rest of the team and everyone in the press box. I can just imagine this had they been in like, you know, they would have probably been also in the Rose Bowl, um, except as a four seed. 
And it would have been, you know, oh, my goodness. It would have been just the entire press box. Everyone would have been probably doing a running joke among all the reporters after each drive or after each play of like, oh, they're still not quite there. Because I think we calculated it. I think Iowa State in order to – pardon me, Iowa. Pardon me. Uh, Iowa in order to uh, hit the 325 drive that they're on this season has to score like three – pardon me, 134 points on uh, Tennessee in order to maintain that average. They're supposedly – they were supposedly hunting all season long to keep Brian Ferentz's job. Like, that's how bad it got. They literally, at this point, would have to uh, get close into – they'd have to do something that hasn't been done in a very, very long time. Yeah, the sickos committee is – every week they would post their little mountain. Oh, yeah, they were doing the mountain graphic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, had a guy, we had a guy who was actually doing a, an interesting kind of table where he looked at if you did count offensive points only or if you counted defensive points as well. And if you didn't count the defensive points, it was even it was so much worse because they were getting so many points on either special teams or uh, you know you know fumble returns and pick sixes that like it, it was just an absolute fascinating thing to see those numbers crunch that way. Um, but uh, let's see, there's one other question I wanted to get to only because it's in the it was asked in the, um, the kind of the chat part of this, and that's by uh, it's a really relevant question by Nick. Because um, it's been coming up, what is FSU's uh, Florida State's next conference move? And this is something that's actually, frankly, for those who've been hardcore paying attention in the off season, gosh, all the way back in like almost a year ago, Florida State was already talking about leaving the ACC or trying to figure out how to leave the ACC. They've been basically having attorneys look at all of this for the past couple of years, both quietly and now they're they're we're being more explicit about the fact that they were so they were already looking at leaving clemson has, has been very well known to be kind of in that boat but not as vocal as florida state and some have argued same with north carolina same with virginia um programs that know that if they were on an open market um aka the big 10 or the sec there might be some interest in them because of their name value and the region and the footprint and all that stuff but mostly their name value so that kind of went quiet during the season. And then of course we all know what happens. Suddenly they are decided that they, they were not picked for the college football playoff site, despite going undefeated in the ACC. If that did not give them more fire to, to want to leave, I don't think anything will unfortunately. And I, I think they will acknowledge this, the grant of rights deal, which is what keeps them all together for fear of paying an enormous penalty was written by some of the best attorneys out there because none of these people they've hired, none of these schools have figured out a way out. And there's some smart people that go to, you know, you know, all these universities in the in the ACC, especially these programs that would like to leave. I mean, Florida State, Clemson, uh, you know, North Carolina and UVA are not exactly uh, full of idiots there. I mean, maybe Duke's the people that they want them to all stay together and they're the ones that wrote it. But um, it, it just seems like they're going to have to pay a ton of money. Now, if they're willing to do it, they might be able to raise some money now, now that maybe their donors or their pockets are even looser than ever to try and get them out. But it's kind of a weird question because I'm not sure there's reasons. The reason why they would leave would not be because of what happened this year, because this year's already happened. It's too late next year, 12 team playoff. They would have absolutely certainly been in. And if the ACC isn't particularly strong, but let's say it's Florida state and Clemson, going back to being the strong programs and, and with some good non-conference wins that keep them in that top 12, then suddenly, yeah, maybe you can be one of the two ACC teams in rather than competing in, in the potentially, potentially tougher SEC or Big Ten or something like that. But I think the bigger argument for still leaving 
is the long-term view. And the long-term view is money because the thing that in the offseason was getting Florida State angry was hearing how much the SEC was about to get and the Big Ten was about to get and seeing how some of these programs like, you know, uh, obviously USC and UCLA were going to be getting and obviously Texas and Oklahoma, those, those programs do bring in money, but FSU sees those programs as peer institutions, at least from uh, athletics, and national, you know, cachet, however you want to see that. One of the things that was brought up at these board meetings was that, you know, Vanderbilt is now going to be getting much more per year through their media deal than Florida State, because they're by nature of just being a member of the SEC. Over time, they see that year after year, while in the short run, Florida State's still going to be a heck of a lot better than Vandy. It, 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 that's no question. Um, Florida State's still going to be a better program. But after you had 10 years in, is there going to be a, a slight deviation, slight veering in these lines? It's suddenly going to become a bigger problem. So maybe Florida State can still compete against the Vandy, but the top of the SEC is just going to go in a whole level that, that they can't reach because the money isn't there. There's some arguments for that. I mean, there's also arguments that Florida State fans are passionate enough that they'd be helping fund it uh, and keep it going and, and able to maintain itself at a level that, that can still compete with all of those top programs. But um, where they go next, I'm not sure. I think we're waiting to see if somebody's willing to do something truly crazy to, uh, uh, or if they're willing to pull a trigger on something really nuts to try and get to that upper level of it. And if they're willing to put that kind of money together, but that was a really good question. And I just wanted to touch on that. John, I see your hand up. Yeah. Just speaking of, you know, you mentioned donors. What do you think the long-term potential of, um, as as you might you may have know, um, a lot more a lot more younger people are not going to college. A lot of them are going to trade or going to professions where you know college is not a necessity as it maybe it was twenty years ago. Do you think the you know do you, do you think some of these colleges are seeing that and seeing the potential of less donors in their long run and really maybe using those uh, numbers to really affect their decisions on where they go for the long run, uh, you know, conference-wise and looking for TV money. You know, I have thoughts on that. I see Ski Mask Murphy's hand went right up, so I think he wants something he wants to add to this as well, and then I'll give my thoughts. Yeah, I was going to say, as far as on the donor side, once I took this class at Michigan that sort of went over, like, the history of sports at Michigan, I realized something that was common here where I'm from in Virginia, but I realized it was something everywhere. For some strange reason, a lot of the biggest donors to a lot of schools' sports programs never attended the school. Like, finding out that Michigan Stadium, which if you've seen the size of it, 100,000 people you know is large, all of the steel for the stadium was donated by a guy who never went to Michigan. He was just a fan and had a steel company. All of the steel was donated. So as far as donors go, I think it's going to be – I think it's still going to be sustainable, even with trade school stuff going on, because when you look at it, I would say college football is almost sort of like European soccer, where it's sort of like – there's just this fan base people who just live in the area around the school who will always be fans, regardless of attendance or not. Yeah, and I, I just to build on that, I think it the the problems and the, the issues that are going to affect uh, are the colleges typically um, that unfortunately are the small private colleges that have have in some ways just kind of reached a point where they're not as for various reasons they're just not as popular as they used to be. Um, because small regional colleges that we're talking about, like, and I'm not going to name any names, but colleges that might be in D3, D2, 
um, in athletics, NAIA, but they're in small towns, usually in the Midwest or the East, uh, the Northeast or in the South. The reason I bring those up is historically, when you would go to college, if you didn't go to like Harvard or something, you'd go to that, the, the college that happened to be nearby, you know, that might be a, a day's carriage ride or something. I mean, I, I'm not joking about that. So suddenly you get freeways, you get roads, you get, you know, um, the idea of, of transit or flying to another place to go to college. You started to see the rise of, first of all, public university. If you're going to go stay around, you might as well go to the public university. That started to win over a lot of folks. Um, so, like, you know, uh, obviously, you know, many state schools that were either maybe they started as teachers' colleges or they were the big, the, the big top university, liberal arts, uh, classics university. All of those, I think, are going to be generally okay. But it's the small colleges that were in small towns that completely drew on the neighborhoods or the towns and the cities and the counties around them. Those are the ones that are going to have the they're going to come out the worst in that because they're the ones, especially as time has passed, the same person they're targeting, the person who might be the person that would go to their college could probably get a better deal by going, I mean, going to a public university. I mean, it's going to be cheaper, right? So I think those colleges are the ones that are going to suffer most because it's going to, if anything, see more people, the number of people that might apply to, let's say, the top schools. I'm not just saying, you know, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, that stuff. The people that are interested in going to those top universities, the top state schools, are still going to apply there. I think their numbers are still going to be pretty good overall. They'll still be able to fill those classes. It's just that the further down you go, those colleges that were kind of the backups for some people, those are the ones where they're not going to simply have the pool because everyone, you know, everyone's going to be because we're, we're it's coming. There's going to be another baby bust. Um, that that is absolutely a demographic shift that's coming, and they know that even without the people that are deciding not to go to college. I mean. That's, that's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to the fact that there is actually a, a baby bus that's coming up that's going to look pretty bad for a lot of the uh, everyone who's relying on an X number of children that was bigger before but is about to shrink again. Um, let's see here. As we're slowly getting into kind of a good time to wrap up, I want to bring one other story. This story, I, I it was um, reported earlier today, and I, I absolutely wish I had the context for this because it was one of the beat reporters for Louisville football, Alex Cuban. I'm crediting him completely on this. This appeared on Twitter. I, again, they're going to the Holiday Bowl, so I don't know how this came up to play USC. Uh, Louisville offensive, uh, offensive lineman Eric Miller, this is the quote, said he feels he can take a manatee but would have to work out the whole underwater thing. So, like, that, that I, again, there's no, there's no context around it. So Louisville offensive lineman, uh, Eric Miller said he can take on a manatee. Um, I don't think he means like he's going to fight it and kill it, but I think he says, I don't know, maybe like if, if we're taking other animal, I, I, there's so many questions I have here. Cause I mean, does that mean, cause manatees are just basically buoyant, you know, tubes of fat that, you know, live in the Everglades, you know, I mean, they're, they're adorable and everything, but they're not like vicious creatures. They're curious, sweet animals. Um, and they hate motorboat engines because they're so curious and they like to stay near the surface. But I mean, are they the offensive linemen of the sea? I'm not sure. But uh, that quote, honest to goodness, I, I wish I knew more about how how that ever came up. And I hope people keep asking about that. Maybe that's the question we have to ask I'll everybody. See, you know? I'll, yeah. I'll see what I can ask when I'm there. I, I will. Uh, I'll try to seek oh, him yes, out. And you're going to be covering the Holiday Bowl, dude. If you <laughs> if you see this Eric Miller guy, you got to ask him about the manatee thing. Maybe we got to get somebody to dress as a manatee and like be in the like walk around the the sideline and kind of like <laughs> wave at him, like just get the big the big costume and everything, because so you don't talk in it, you just wave quietly. 
I'll make sure I let him know, though. He can't do it in the state of Florida. They're protected there, so he'll have to find another place. <laughs> like, was he at SeaWorld? Like, that's the only thing I can come up with in San Diego where this might have ever come up. Does SeaWorld, does SeaWorld have manatees? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> well, if they do, they should protect them. Oh, or the San Diego Zoo. You know, there's there's lots of ways. Like, is he going to just suddenly jump in the water and, like, grab the thing? Like, I, again, I just I love this whole this whole situation. John, I see your hand up. <laughs> well, man, that was uh, quite a quite a note. But um, I did want to end on on a on a nice uh, heartwarmer note. I know a lot. There's a lot of people out there that talk about you know a, a, a bowl season seems meaningless or doesn't have a purpose. But you know, I really really appreciate it. You know, it's really nice to see uh, Brett Brennan. Who, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure a lot of people know is the cousin of Colt Brennan. Um, he's the head coach for San Jose State, and they're at the Hawaii Bowl um, this upcoming weekend. It's honestly it's a very cool and very touching note to see uh, him wear his uh, cousin's jersey um, in honor of him for this weekend's game. So I I, I wanted to say that I think uh, you know I think it's one of the things that makes bowl games a great time. Unless it's a toast bowl, toast bowls suck. I hate everything with toast. Good night. Yeah, too bad it was in the Bahamas too. That was the worst part. Like that was that was how many things went wrong for Old Dominion there. They were supposed to be playing in the Bahamas, but they're repairing the stadium, so they got sent to Charlotte, and then they go. They go up by 20 points, and then they still manage to lose the game in overtime. Like, that's just a brutal time for Old Dominion. What yeah. can I say? Yeah, no. I, I, at least it was in the Bahamas. I could have brought my own rum into the stadium and just drank my worries away. Absolutely. I hope that. Like, cause that, that's the thing about the Bahamas Bowl, for those who don't know. We had a, a someone from RCFB went, and the story he wrote about it is a legend. He, he talked about how loose the stadium was. Like, you could just walk in with a bag of beer. And just as long as you gave a beer to one of the security guards on the way in, everyone just kind of high-fived you and you went in the game and people were just kind of meandering around the side of the field while the game was going on. People were sort of dancing and, you know, archery with little children outside. They gave little children bows and arrows to, like, shoot at things. Like, it was just absolute... It was, like, the most, like, chaotic good if you're in the Dungeons & Dragons and stuff like that. It was, like, it was just, like, the most amiable, like, exactly what you'd expect if the Caribbean had a bowl game, I mean, which it was, that's exactly, you've got the exact environment. So I hope whatever they're doing to that, that stadium in the Bahamas, it's still going to have that same vibe because that's absolutely a necessity. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap this up. I don't mind that it's not going for 90 minutes for a change. Um, this is RCFB Talk 171. My name's Bob Akairi. It's always a great time talking to all of you. As one last reminder, this is the final week of our RCFB holiday drive. Well, every dollar gets donated. We're a 501c3. It's all tax deductible. Half the money we get goes to Toys for Tots. The other half goes to children's hospitals. We determine which three children's hospitals based on which fan bases donated the most money. So feel free to join that. If you do, we'd love to have you there. Otherwise, we'll be back next week, next Tuesday. So on behalf of all of us at RCFB, I'm going to hang up and listen.